Hi, I'm Jane Whitney. Welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. On every episode, we bring together diverse voices from across the nation to discuss the most pressing and controversial issues of our time, issues that make a difference in your life. When the pandemic first struck, it seemed surreal, like the plot of a science fiction movie. Then virtually overnight, a deadly virus turned our lives upside down as many of our darkest nightmares morphed into our new reality. That reality, fraught with fear and uncertainty, has changed our nation, our world, and each of us in ways we never dreamed possible. Today, we'll ask our guests how this inflection point in time impacted them and how they think it's changed our culture for better or for worse. We're grateful to have with us Tim Daly, actor and president of the Creative Coalition, John Lithgow, actor and best-selling author, Dr. Kavita Patel, a fellow at the Brookings Institution whose book on grief and loss will be published next spring. Danielle Ponder, public defender by day and musician by night. And our first two guests, Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough, co-hosts of the MSNBC weekday broadcast, Morning Joe. We are so excited to have you both here. We want to talk about personally how the pandemic impacted you. But first, I want to talk about how it affected some of the the issues that you both clearly have a passion for. And Mika, I'll start with you. Against the backdrop of the pandemic, more than 740,000 Americans lost their lives. There were sweeping protests for racial injustice. There was a changing of the guard at the White House. And there was an insurrection on January 6th that tried to subvert the uh, results of a presidential election. How do you how do you characterize the last 18 months? You summed it up pretty well. Uh, there were a lot of challenges. Um, and I really struggle, but um, I am really hell-bent on remaining hopeful. Um, there were a, a couple of issues that are important to each of us where there were significant impacts. For me, I run a platform for women that Jane, I know you know well, and thank you for having us here, by the way. But uh, women, it was a brutal experience for most women during the pandemic. Many of them fell out of the workforce. Many of them gave up. Many of them took on 50 more responsibilities. Many of them are struggling to hang on. And we were doing so well uh, before the pandemic hit in terms of sort of learning as as a as a as a world as a community but also in different industries to retain strong female diverse talent and try and keep it and develop women leaders within those different sectors and this was a real hit you're an optimist i i I know that from watching you but but what do you see that's pushing something forward right now for women So I actually am extremely optimistic. I think we're learning so much about like what women face throughout all this and telling this story. I think a lot of women need help. One thing I've learned, and uh, Joe's been so unbelievably supportive with this, um, over the past year during the pandemic, I've been working on the Forbes 50 over 50 list, which I partnered with Forbes on it. And we had over 10,000 submissions The um, criteria was women over 50 who had achieved great success after the age of 50 and were paying it forward. This really gave women over 50 who were doing amazing things a place to go and brag on themselves. And there were so many and there are so many more women who helped create 
uh, the vaccine, you know, women who are Speaker of the House twice and impeaching Mm -hmm. presidents, (laughs) women vice presidents, women running companies, artists. I mean, there were just such an amazing array of women on this list. And the message is for younger women, and it's extremely hopeful that unlike you and me, Jane, who we thought, oh my gosh, there's always a clock ticking in our life. And we don't know when it's going to end. It probably will end soon, you know, in terms of our careers. And we have to struggle to stay in there and hang on. Unlike us, the younger women look at this list and they see that there is an incredibly long runway for them to plan out their lives, to pace out their careers and let life interrupt the process if need be. Thanks to the women on these lists. So I am very hopeful. Joe, um, we all learned that the public health infrastructure was not built to tackle the scope of COVID-19. But beyond that, there was a purposeful strategic initiative to politicize this pandemic. You, the the political veteran, who theoretically have seen it all in your time, had had anything prepared you to see that 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 politics would trump public health? Well, we had been shocked over the past three years by a lot of things that had happened. So I suppose uh, while we were very surprised that it was politicized, uh, we didn't expect it to continue to be politicized into March, April, May, when it became apparent that this was a deadly pandemic. Um, I think our biggest shock has been how the politicalization has spread beyond uh, politicians in Washington, D.C., and has actually divided this country. Um, And so I think really the great risk doesn't come directly from Washington, D.C. It it actually has risen up among us from people who will believe any conspiracy theory they see on on social media, as long as it reinforces their own pre-existing prejudice. So that's the great concern. And I think that's a great challenge. How do we get the facts out there in a way that will reach even those who don't want to hear the facts? Because our democracy, at the end of the day, it depends, on the end of the day, on peaceful transfers of power, uh, where both parties come together and support a peaceful transfer of power from one administration to the next, even when uh, your side, your particular side, doesn't win that election. You know what a lot of folks are saying right now, which is that we're really watching a slow-moving coup. What do you tell people right now in terms of trying to get them off the ledge? Because a lot of people are out there on the ledge right now. It's really frustrating. And I have some people close to me that are often on the ledge, (laughs) catastrophizing. Oh, Uh, I'm not catastrophizing. As we say, I think many many people uh, may think that I've been too Pollyannish through the years. It seems like I've spent most of my adult life uh, when Democrats like Bill Clinton or Barack Obama got elected, telling my my parents and telling my friends, it's not the end of the world. It's going to be okay. Barack Obama is not going to institute Sharia law uh, in Pensacola, Florida. Just relax, Ma. Uh, and then, and then, my friends on the Upper West Side and and, and other places, uh, when Republicans would get elected in the past, uh, they would be catastrophizing. And I'd always hit the same thing: Hey, we have an election every two years. You don't like what's happening right now? Don't worry about it. That's a great thing about Madisonian democracy. We have checks and balances. I do want to say that the system of checks and balances did work in 2020, Uh, certainly didn't work from the first branch. Republicans 
in Congress, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, followed what uh, the president of the United States told them to do. But we did actually have uh, the third branch, uh, the federal court system, mm. where one federal judge after another federal judge, whether they were appointed by Barack Obama or Donald Trump, uh, stood firm and rejected every one of these outrageous claims by the president and, uh, and all of his men and women that were running around trying to push conspiracy theories on federal courts. Uh, they didn't do it. Uh, and uh, not a single court actually went along with these outrageous claims. So I am optimistic and I am hopeful that we'll continue to have a federal court system uh, that will continue to provide those checks and balances. Going to switch gears a little bit, Mika, because you wrote a wonderful piece recently about your extraordinary 89-year-old mother, Emily, who's an artist of renown, who has had a very tough time since your father died. And um, you had an experience where, and I think Joe was instrumental, at least you gave him credit, um, in suggesting that the two of you go away for three weeks together, you and your mother, and that it was one of the best times of your life. Why? Well, the pandemic um, kept us home. And my mom actually is right nearby, like a neighbor. And um, so I got to see her every day because I wasn't traveling anymore, which was one of the you know unexpected silver linings of the pandemic. Um, our animals liked it as well. And our cats <laughs> love it. Yeah, they um, it cats dogs. and dogs yeah, and all, kids. All so, but uh, no, and I, I really, our relationship has become in much more, um, it, it's been enriched by the time that we've had together. And my mom was a little discombobulated and, and confused a little bit about where, what happened to her life. Because when my father pa passed almost four years ago, mm -hmm. God, is it that long? Um, she had two heart attacks and then was diagnosed with Parkinson's and like all this stuff was coming down on her. We really didn't think that it would, she would have a good time ahead of this. She would even be able to really get by. We have a house in Maine that we've been going to for 54 years. And Joe suggested that me and my mom just go just ourselves my God, we had the best time. She came, really came back to life. It was just me and her and we could really talk. I mean, I am so grateful that he came up with the idea because it was really one of the best trips of my life. I have to say, when I watched your mother, um, I, should, I should actually mention that my late mother-in-law, Flora Lewis, who was the foreign affairs columnist at the New York Times, and a pioneer journalist boy in her own right, she, was, she didn't want to talk about anything except reassembling Yugoslavia. You didn't do small talk with my mother-in-law. But the point was, she knew your father. I have pictures um, of the two of them at an event where she was honored. And, and I watched your mother... Um, with that that very just proud, no nonsense kind of bearing in the spot, and and Joe, what it what it brought to mind is that in this culture, we we've lost any kind of collective spirit that we're doing something collaborative spirit like prevailed, uh, you know, World War II, 9/11, whatever event you want to mention, um, which to our detriment. I think has also probably been a factor in the death toll of the pandemic. Do you ever think about that and whether that's that's something that we can get back? 
Can we get that back? We can. It's been a rough 20 years, though. I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not mm-hmm. going to sugarcoat it. You could almost go year by year by year and talk about things that have happened that have, have really shaken Americans' confidence in institutions. Uh, and we somehow have to uh, re, re, uh, reassemble uh, that, uh, uh, reunify this country, start figuring out a way to bring this country together. I'm writing a book about Abraham Lincoln right now, uh, and I've sort of lived in Lincoln's life over the past year, year and a half. And here's a guy from 1834 uh, until his death in April of 1865 that was constantly balancing three or four factions that were constantly tearing away at him. He was a radical to a Southern uh, to, to, to Southerners. Uh, he was... Uh, a sellout uh, to uh, Northern abolitionists. He didn't go far enough uh, to Northern radicals. He didn't go far enough for, for uh, or he went too far for Northern moderates. And there was all of this balancing uh, that Lincoln was able to do. And we were actually, the, the battle then was over human bondage. Right. What we're fighting about right now and what we're divided about right now has to do with bizarre conspiracy theories on Facebook. And that's dividing America. I, I think I think we can do better. And I think we owe better to our children and grandchildren. Sure. We're actually out of time at this point, which I find incredible. I want to thank both of you. Um, I, we've been looking forward to this for so long and you've just been terrific. The only problem, of course, is we don't have enough time. Thank you so much for having Thank you. Thank you for being here. We appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. Next up, we are going to talk to somebody who helped us get through the pandemic with her straight talk. She has been a source of reliable information and comfort for the last 18 months. And we're very pleased to welcome Dr. Kavita Patel. Uh, Dr. Patel, great to have you with us because you were on the first show, actually, of the season uh, with Dr. Fauci talking about uh, one half of what you call the twindemic, which is the medical, the medical and scientific half. And you are back today because um, you're, you're now talking about the emotional fallout, the mental health fallout that has really not been addressed in this country. And I have to ask you, with so much loss and grief, why hasn't it been talked about, do you think? Yeah, Jane, thanks so much for having me. And I can't think of a better way to kind of uh, bookend my time with you than to also talk about what I think we're going to be dealing with for generations. And and I think just to be candid, it's pretty hard to talk about things, especially when you're just trying to survive day to day. I think so many of us, myself included, I know you and your loved ones, we were just trying to navigate, you know, can I leave my house? Can I get my groceries and do I have to wash my apples? Do I need to, you know, rub down everything with bleach? And so when you're in that moment, and scientifically, that's kind of that adrenaline, right, that you're really, your body needs to just function like moment to moment, you don't have the luxury of kind of thinking and reacting and responding to kind of what's been missing or lost or some of that emotion. And I think you've you've touched on this, Jane. I think you've done an amazing job. It, it comes up when we talk about the loss in the pandemic. But uh, my kind of interest in grief, ironically, you know, started before the pandemic, but now feels 
more than ever that we need to just have this conversation out in the open. And it's linked to mental health because not not everybody who grieves or not anybody who kind of comes across these emotions of grief necessarily has a mental health disorder. But it is very clear that in our country, we treat the physical conditions and symptoms we have very different from the mental conditions. It's a travesty that in this country, um, in so many ways, so smart and so progressive, we still do not accord mental health problems the same deference or the same importance that physical problems have. There's a, let's be, I mean, there's a stigma yeah. about a lot of mental health issues still to this day. So I, I do want to go back, though, because you, did, you started writing this book about grief and loss before the pandemic started. What gave you the impetus? What, why did you write it? I started this because for two decades in practice, Jane, I have seen so many aspects of grief hidden it's not the thing that people come in for, but when I would diagnose um, a woman, for example, with her initial breast cancer, and we would sit down and talk about her abnormal mammogram, and then we would talk very logically, and all they heard was the word cancer, and then they'd have to walk out and go to their job or to their home or pick up their kids. There was this incredible grief that went unacknowledged, and I would often call them like that weekend and just check in, and then all of a sudden, both of us found ourselves incredibly emotional. In many cultures, including American ones, we talk about grief like you'll get over it. You'll get through it. You'll go through um, the five stages of grief. And then somehow something on the other side of it will make it, quote unquote, better. Grief doesn't get better. It's just something is that you kind of live and you find yourself surrounding your life with meaning around that grief. And honestly, the pandemic, which I would never have hoped on our people, our world to have happened, really just made that more universal because everybody had some loss, even if it wasn't a direct loss of life. Just the loss, you and I not being able to see each other in person not being able to go to work, losing a job, losing a relationship, and then of course losing life or losing health as a very dramatic example that happened to every single one of us around the world. Do you think that that's the biggest misconception that grief somehow is something that it's linear and if we just keep going and time will heal everything, is that the biggest misconception? That's the biggest one. The second one has really also been um, not understanding that grief itself actually can take its toll on your very kind of cellular being, on your health. The other misconception is that in order to kind of experience grief, you had to have lost a life. I would actually say that there's no comparator. You shouldn't try to say, well, I just lost a job and I didn't lose my life for someone I love. But it doesn't matter because if you think about the analogy, Jane, of like um, grief being that stone in your shoe that you kind of step on all the time and it's always there, doesn't matter what caused that stone to be there. It's always there. And, and that's part of what I want people to just acknowledge and kind of find a way to, to see that stone, but find a way to put their foot in that shoe and continue to walk. That's really the analogy. Another thing that might surprise people is that children, you have two young children and children experience mm -hmm. grief and loss. And you mentioned the cellular changes that can be, um, facilitated mm -hmm. by those emotions. Talk about that a little bit, because I think that will surprise people. You know, we think of children as being so resilient, so happy, and they are. But in a very interesting set of studies from 1940s, even up to the current day, we have found now that children, for example, that have been perfectly healthy when born, Jane, but have not been held. And, and I'm not talking, you know, not being held for months or, or years who have not been held for weeks actually have 
decreased brain development compared to children who have been held and been told, I love you every day. And so that's one example. And then even just kind of fast forward to a five-year-old who is held back from school, from their peers, because they might have, um, they might have a, a learning issue or they might have an emotional issue. And we sometimes just take it for granted. You hear all the time, oh, you know, my son had to be held back for a year. He needed an extra year. That has had a profound effect that researchers have picked up on even a decade later. I want to go back to a moment that did become really sort of iconic. It's been talked about a lot. Uh, you had been on the air for so long, being the good doctor and, and making people understand what was going on. And then there was a broadcast the night of the uh, first memorial that really honored the victims of COVID. And it was spearheaded by um, President Biden right before he was inaugurated. And you were on the air with Nicole Wallace and you just lost it. I did. You absolutely. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was, it was the most, actually watching it was in a way cathartic. And then everybody watching you started crying. But that moment for people that we had actually not, we had not experienced that. Right. There'd been like a year of going through the COVID and not really being able to express feelings. Do you still think about that moment or can you talk about how important that moment was for you? This is exactly why before the pandemic, I wanted to kind of write about this topic, grief, because that basically, Jane, in that moment, and it was Nicole, myself and Eddie, and, and the three of us grieved on camera. And, and I kind of started it because I just lost it. The producer was in my ear saying, OK, Kavita, we're going to cut to you. And I screamed, no, 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 no. I'm crying. I can't. And then all of a sudden it was like, OK, you know, we're back with <laughs> Kavita Patel. And I, and I thought to myself, I can't be on television getting so emotional about this. And then in a moment, I didn't think and I just now on reflection realized that it's the very thing that I've been wanting to both write about, but also have more people in the world feel comfortable doing, not crying on TV, but openly acknowledging how for a year plus, Jane, we had not had a, any, we had not had this like public moment where we could grieve. We had not had that moment with, you know, the 9-11 kind of like, we had not had that moment where President George W. Bush then like addressed the nation. We had not had the moment with Sandy Hook where President Barack Obama addressed the nation. And every single person kind of that came into contact with me and still to this day, they said they needed that. They needed that good cry. And when you see that, like I needed that good cry, that's an expression of grief. And it's because you needed something to acknowledge, like something that was lost inside of you and this kind of sadness inside of you. And that's where I think finding meaning, even that moment of publicly grieving together on TV was a way of actually kind of finding meaning around something that had no meaning, something that felt so senseless, 400,000 lost lives. And I can't believe that that was like the lower end of the number. We're now at 750,000 and counting. And, you know, if you had told me that we would be here and still see this loss of life, I, would, I wouldn't believe it, but here we are. So that was important. I can't believe it this time either, but we are, we are out of time with you. Can you tell quickly, because we did ask, gone quickly, what is, is there a silver lining for you out of this? Yeah. Out of this last 18 months? There is. There's a silver lining in that, number one, we have new relationships and those new relationships spark actually our ability to come forward with meaning in different ways. And I actually think that for many people, myself included, Jane, it's a reset point where we can actually use 
what we've gone through to say, this is a direction, I'm going to take my life in a direction where every day I'm going to try to figure out what meaning is to me. And that could mean a number of different things for every individual, but it could just be changing one habit a day. For me, it's a silver lining that we will create meaning kind of one person at a time and within ourselves. And and it's possible. It's within our reach. Dr. Kavita Patel, on behalf of A Grateful Nation, we thank you for everything you do and continue to do to keep us informed and sane. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Shane. Now, our next guest segued directly from the final of six seasons of his smash TV series, Madam Secretary, to lockdown. That was the next thing. One minute he was celebrating, then it was lockdown. And we are delighted to welcome to the program Tim Daly, who is an actor, as everyone knows, and an amazing activist. And um, Tim, I, I can't, I've seen you in a lot of different roles, but I, I've never seen you in the role of a COVID nurse. Um, but apparently that was something that you experienced not just once, but twice. So tell us about the first time, how, how you wound up um, nursing your sister, who's also an amazing actor, Tyne Daly. What happened? Well, um, I had just gotten back from Los Angeles, actually, where I was staying in a hotel where I could see people wheeling huge baskets of toilet paper around. And I thought, what are they doing? They, you can't eat toilet paper. Uh, anyway, I got back to New York. Tyne and I went to the theater together. And about two days later, she was very sick. I took her to get tested and she had COVID. So there we were quarantined. Uh, now, I just you know have to make a disclaimer that uh, it was a very 1% quarantine. Uh, so, you know, don't feel too sorry for me, but, but feel sorry for Tyne because she was very sick and um, I was her caregiver for a month. All kidding aside, I mean, you can talk about the fact that it wasn't maybe the most uncomfortable quarantine that you had to go through as opposed to many people who have really struggled with um, lockdown and, and the isolation. According to the Pew Research poll, most people have experienced really severe uh, loss and, and of friends and family and the feeling of isolation. Now, when you were with Tyne, was, was that something that you went through? Was there any kind of emotional fallout that you went through? Oh, without a doubt. It was one of the loneliest times of my life. I mean, there I was with someone who I loved dearly. I couldn't hold them. I couldn't you know, tell them everything was going to be okay because I didn't know. You know, luckily she didn't have to be hospitalized, but it just seemed so lonely and cruel because at other times of great crisis, like 9-11, an example that your other guests have used, we were able to hug each other and hold each other and comfort each other. And with uh, COVID, you had to treat someone like they were, well, like they were diseased because they were and stay away from them. And uh, it just felt cruel for both people. And, and you know, it, being in isolation is exactly what it says. It's isolating. Um, and you feel cut off from the world and cut off from your loved ones. And, and uh, so I think it's a very cruel disease. You are an activist. You're the longtime president of the Creative Coalition, which is an arts advocacy group. You did PSAs to try and, and make people aware of some of the facts about COVID. The linkage between uh, COVID and obesity was one of them. You also were one of the people who predicted that Mr. Trump would win the presidency. And so, 
given your your political mindset, which um, I know you have, was it was it surprising to you to see how divided people were on the subject of trying to keep people alive, or how politicized mask wearing became? Uh, was that something that that you were startled by? Absolutely. I mean, the thing in my observation, Americans are not very good at planning ahead, right? We don't, we don't take a very long view of, of things, but when there's a crisis, we bond together, we put our, our treasure and our sweat equity into it, and we're very generous and kind and hardworking when it comes to disasters, whether they're natural, natural disasters or you know, uh, 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 other crises. But this crisis, seem to divide us, which is absolutely strange to me. Um, I, I can't believe that something that is so completely uh, indiscriminate in, the, in who it attacks could be seen as something that was a, a, political, um, a, a, a political or politicized disease. It, it just astounded me because it, it, to me that's a sort of a new chapter in America um, because most of the time when we're faced with something like this, we bond together. You also uh, were quoted as saying that this era is like a master class in the serenity prayer. Why do you say that? You know, for those people who don't already know, I've been sober for uh, a long time. Uh, and the serenity prayer is an important part of my, my sobriety practice. And, you know, this idea that you uh, ask to be granted the serenity to accept things you cannot change and the courage to change you th the things you can. And then the caveat there is the last sentence is the wisdom to know the difference. And that's really tough. But realizing that there's nothing that we could do initially about this virus. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know how it spread. Uh, information was coming in every day and it was changing the former information. And then finally a vaccine arrived and that was the moment where I, at least, had the wisdom to know that there was something I could do, uh, which was to get vaccinated and protect myself and hopefully others. But um, the uncertainty of it all um, and living in that uncertainty without having any means to change it is very difficult. A viewer from Sharon, Massachusetts, wanted us to ask you, uh, because she knows of your activism, how how you would get young people more involved in elections and government. They did vote in, in record numbers in the last election in 2020, but it's not a terrific record, to be honest. They, were, they did better this time. How do you think we can engage young people more in the process? Um, this is going to sound really radical, but um, if I... The the king of the United States. I don't think I'd make a good president because it would take too long to get things done. I'd have to be the king. Um, <laughs> but if I were king, I would institute um, a draft. I would have young people go into a draft and spend two years. Like They would do basic training and then they would two years doing community service. And the reason I would do that is because I think there's a great value in having uh, your commanding officer be the son or daughter of a plumber when uh, you you are the son or daughter of a billionaire CEO. I think that that that, that we need to realize uh, how grateful we should be to live in this country and um, the incredible opportunities and freedoms that we have. But there has to be a um, an organizing principle. And I think that if uh, young people were um, 
had to work together and had to have a common experience uh, that even if their opinions were vastly different, they would have a common goal, which is to preserve our great democracy and our great freedoms and our great uh, uh, country. You have two children, Sam and Emmelyn, and that being a father is, is really everything to, to you. Has that been something that just takes priority? Was it, was it something you were able to do throughout the pandemic? Were you able to Zoom or see them? Or how did they do during the pandemic? My son was an absolute champion. He, his wife is a, a very high-powered executive. She works for the Los Angeles Rams. And thankfully, she was able to keep and do her job so that they could feed their children, my, my two grandsons. Um, and Sam just, uh, you know, the entertainment business just ceased. He's an actor, so he um, really took over, you know, all the parenting duties and cooked three meals a day, and he was absolute champ. And uh, I think he, you know, got to a place where he was almost in, going insane, but he held himself together, and he was just the best father I can imagine, which makes me so proud and happy for him and for his kids. Um, my daughter uh, initially struggled very, very hard, um, but she was kind of amazing because she did all the right things. You know, she wrote, she read, she worked out, she studied, um, and uh, she really kind of pulled herself uh, out of this kind of grief that uh, Dr. Patel was talking about and um, came out of it, I, th I think, much stronger. But um, initially, the first few months was very, very tough on her because like for a lot of young adults, uh, her life is just getting going. And it felt like someone slammed on the brakes um, and for her to get to that part of the serenity prayer that says, accept the things I cannot change was very hard. Um, and when she finally did, she did much better. We are so grateful that you were able to join us today because I know you're in the middle of shooting your next show, which I'm going to plug it. It's called The Game. We will look forward to that. And again, thank you so much for being with us today. It's just been a pleasure. Thanks, Tim. And appreciate it. Take good care. Recently, I was honored to be able to sit down with another one of America's versatile, fabulous actors, John Lithgow. And he talked about how he got through the pandemic. And as you'll, you'll, you're about to see, he turned me in. I'm, see, I'm so nervous just thinking about it. He turned me into a total fan, fangirl. I've loved John Lithgow for years. So let's take a look at the interview right now. I didn't realize what an overachiever you are, John Lithgow, until I started doing research and I saw you've gotten two Tonys. I have to read this. It's such a long list. Six Emmys, two Golden Globes, two Oscar nominations. You've written nine children's books. I think you've written four other books, an entertaining book, an acting book. Um, and you've been on Broadway 25 times. And I must tell you how effective a communicator you are. I saw Dirty Rotten Scoundrels eight times. I also Googled your name and the word pandemic because I wanted to see what would come up. And, and quite a few things actually did come up, uh, including an interview you had done with Conan O'Brien talking about yeah. one of the upsides, if not the upside of the pandemic um, involving your wife of 40 years, Mary. So would you, would you talk about that? It's very sweet. Well, it was it was. Uh, a, a year and a half of uninterrupted time with Mary, which for us is was completely 
brand new. Uh, I'm an actor and she's a professor and our two professions just yank us away from each other for over and over again for my work, location work, her teaching in LA while I'm doing a Broadway show. This just was, it was kind of forced cohabitation and we just loved it. You know, it was, of course it was a terrible time. The whole world was suffering and, but, but boredom was never a problem and we were very active and productive and together. So it was, we made the best of it. It was the definition of making lemonade. Was there anything that really stands out in terms of what was a hard adjustment for you? I think politics affected me like like it never had. I mean, the past year, the past four years have been have been just a terrible time for just turning on the news and being bummed out for the rest of the day. Uh, the news cycle was just torture. And I had my own very peculiar way of dealing with it. I wrote political satire. Right. I wrote two of my three Dumpty books during that time. Right. The Dumpty trilogy, as we affectionately call it. Somebody picks up one of the Dumpty books. What do you want that reader to experience? Well, in the introduction to the second of the three, I said that my intention was threefold. To make people laugh, to, to make them mad, and to make them remember. As it turns out, these are very brief and snappy history books. They are a sort of real-time record of what we've been through in the last three years, because the first book I started writing halfway through the Dumpty administration. And as I wrote the poems, all of the poems, or all three of the books, events would come along halfway through that I could respond to in real time. For the five people who maybe haven't looked at one of the Dumpty books, um, can you give an example, um, maybe one of, the, one of the one about the allegory about the Republican Party? You're talking, I believe, about uh, the Tiger King. That, that is the allegory, the allegory of, the, of, of a family called the Tories. I called it the Tories or the, the Tiger King. Uh, they, it's about a family that adopts a tiger cub because the, the children insist, the children being basically the Freedom Caucus and the family being the Republican Party. And to their horror, this adorable cub grows up to be a monstrous tiger. And they attempt to ride the tiger anyway because they don't dare disobey the tiger and the tiger ends up devouring them whole. To me, it's a perfect allegory for what's happened to the Republican Party. You know, but you did pick subjects that really don't lend themselves to humor. Obviously, the pandemic, um, Black Lives Matter. Um, did you have to edit yourself in terms of being maybe a little too sharp, a little too acerbic, a little too, I don't know, realistic in terms of covering any of those subjects? A little bit. Uh, I just tried to make them readable and not offensive. I didn't mind being controversial, but I didn't want to be too offensive. But I was a little offensive from time to time. Uh, I wrote a bunch of very offensive limericks <laughs> about the present day at the end of Trump. I won't read any of them, but I will read you the very last stanza from these verses. You know, I, I, I diss Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Sidney Powell, all these people. And at the end, I say, 
From these verses, you might be inclined to consider each target maligned, but compared to their smears of the recent few years, my words have been overly kind. And I honestly believe that's true. I mean, I may have been a little offensive, but they have been extremely offensive. So I feel that's kind of my role to slightly scandalize, but express my own uh, ulcerous rage and just to sort of transmute it into amusement and entertainment. You, were you able to do any acting projects during the pandemic at all? Uh, I did nothing at all on stage. I did do a few audiobook prop projects, but no, I did. It was, it's the longest I've gone without acting on stage or on screen in all these years. And I've only just resumed in the last month doing not one, not two, but three movies. We'd love to do a retrospective, actually, of a John Lithgow retrospective, but we don't have the time for that. So we do have a clip from The Crown for which you won a primetime Emmy playing Winston Churchill, and we're going to take a look at that right now. Hello, Winston. a lot about the pandemic um, in terms of medical and, and scientific information, but one of the things that, that doesn't get talked about a lot or enough as far as I'm concerned is the fact that it's really uh, revealed a lack of collaborative, collective experience in this, in this country to all sort of, as they did during World War II, band together as we did after 9-11 to, to unite and, and try and, and carry on together. Since you played Winston Churchill, how do you think he, leadership is so key? I mean, would, how would Winston Churchill have handled the pandemic? I think it was in 1952, uh, an event that I knew nothing about, but in England they regarded as the way we think about Katrina or the Johnstown flood. Uh, and Churchill did not distinguish himself. He, re he was a denier. He, he said, this is just the weather. It's the weather. This is the great thing about the crown, the fact that it, it's, it presents its heroes and its icons in many, many dimensions, not all of them. Uh, positive. Uh, that said, the, the, the important answer to your question is, it was a moment that required great leadership, and we did see examples of that. I would say most notably Ahern, that remarkable woman in New Zealand. She, her first response was to be absolutely clear and, and enlist the entire population of that small country as her partner. That's what's required of a leader, not to be divisive. Of, of all moments, it's the moment when you must not be divisive. You must unify the country and make the right decisions instead of the wrong ones. And that 
it's a major catastrophe. And we, history will judge us very harshly for the way we responded. And just suggesting this, that maybe you might want to consider doing a revival of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, just saying we'd be up for that. So we thank you. We wish you good health. And we thank you for everything you've done to bring us such joy with your craft. Thank you. And now it's my honor to introduce our final guest of this broadcast, who brings a, a unique perspective. And that's because Daniel Ponder, by day, has defended thousands of folks in the criminal justice system as a public defender. But by night and on the weekends, she is an amazing rhythm and blues singer who has just signed her first recording contract. And Danielle, we're thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you so much for being here. Let me ask you, your, your brother inspired you to go and become a lawyer. Talk about why, why that happened. Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. And my brother, when I was 16, was sentenced to 20 years to life. Um, and it wasn't for a murder. It was for a robbery, um, which was shocking to our family. Uh, but because of our state's laws on mandatory minimums, the minimum time that he could get was 20 years. Um, and just through that experience, I realized that there were laws on the books that made our criminal justice system unfair. Um, and I wanted to do something about that. So I knew that I wanted to work on criminal justice reform. At that time, I didn't know I would end up being a public defender, but that's where uh, the journey took me. You did a terrific TED Talk that I heartily recommend to everybody. Go see Daniel Ponder's TED Talk, because in it you talk about the fact that we've created a system that is beneath us. What do you mean by that? You know, I think that at our core as human beings, we have an innate ability to empathize with others. Um, and in my TED Talk, I talk about how I see this in music, right? When I get on stage and I sing a love song, People in the, the audience, maybe they're not even in a relationship, but they can feel those emotions. Or if I sing a happy song, all of a sudden the whole audience can feel those emotions. So what I you know, talk about is that music really reveals the tenderness of the human heart. And there's been a lot of junk that we put on top of our heart, but I think to our core, we are empathetic. And so I really advocate for us to create a system that is based on compassion. Talk about the example of going to your brother's prison, I think it was Attica, and, and he arranged, which is like amazing, yeah. to have you sing at a concert there. What happened? People ask me, what was your favorite concert ever? And I always say Attica State Prison, and they're shocked. <laughs> um, my brother was in Attica, that's where he served the majority of his time, and he actually, um, had us come and perform. So we performed at Attica. And what was so beautiful about this is that, you know, the men were dancing, they were singing along with us. But about two or three songs in, we noticed that the guards, you know, they start tapping their feet and the guards start clapping their hand. And for a moment, there just was this, you know, this the line between guard and inmate really became blurred. And what we begin to see is just people hearing music and enjoying it. And two things happen. Um, one person who was incarcerated said to us, when you all were here, I felt like I wasn't in prison. And a guard said to me, 
I could be any of these men without different circumstances. And I don't know what brought them both to that conclusion, but I like to think a moment of being together with one in a green uniform, one in an orange uniform, both clapping on the same beat, kind of reminded each of them of their humanity and how they're just not as different as society makes it seems. It was, it was an awesome moment. Before we talk about your experience with the pandemic, uh, we have a clip of one of your songs called Poor Man's Pain. And along with your brother, it's my understanding that a man named Willie Simmons inspired that song. What, what happened to Willie Simmons? Willie Simmons um, was arrested for stealing $9 in 1982. And he received a life sentence. And he's still in prison in Alabama. He's exhausted all of his appeals. Um, so he only could can be granted clemency. I don't know what it was about that story, maybe because I was born in 1982. Um, but there was something about that story that just really struck me. And the fact that He's tried everything he can to be released. Um, and so he, him along with other men and women who are incarcerated, inspired this song. Did the crime pay more than time? Time and time and time again. Land of laws for the darker man. Freedom comes too slow. play the second the second half going out of the show today but I have to tell you that every time I listen to you I cry which is a good thing because you're you're just the emotion is um is just amazing let's just talk about the pandemic because you had been quoted as talking about how the last 18 months for an African American for people of color in this country has been excruciating between the fact that people of color are disproportionately affected by the pandemic and, of course, uh, the protests of last summer and, and the murders of, of black people. How, how much, you're, were you in lockdown? How much were you affected and you were alone during this? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I was in lockdown like most of the country. Um, and I was in a place where I thought I would be playing shows, but there was just complete silence. For 15 years, I've been able to get up and perform and I could no longer do that. And then it was a George Floyd summer as well. So as folks say, it's difficult just being a human being, you know, and it's extra difficult being a black person, um, especially in this country. So we went through all the trauma that everyone went through in the pandemic and then additional trauma 
seeing on television folks that look like my brother being killed. Um, and then the uh, the crowd uh, against Black Lives Matter, um, the crowd that came out against uh, uh, folks like George Floyd was so loud and amplified. I felt like more than in recent years that that was also disheartening. Um, so it was trauma on top of trauma. And for me, it really took a heavy toll on me, especially because I couldn't do what I always do, which is get go to a show, talk to it about the talk about it with the audience, perform. Um, so I had to go inward, and that that was difficult. But you got through it. I, I got through it. I did. And I think actually being at the protest. As difficult as that was, we had a very violent protest in Rochester. Um, the police uh, were violent towards the citizens who were protesting, but we did form community at that time. And I've just made friends um, through that protest who I'm still very connected with. And I think that's what helped me get through it. Final question, Danielle Ponder for today. What would you say to people, let's go back to the labels that you talk about. What would you say to people who think they know when they hear somebody is a convict or that they've been in, in prison? What would you say to people? What do you want them to take away from the show today? Yeah, I think this is um, really heavy for me because I, I deal with this when I say that my brother was incarcerated I think that we all are not the worst things that we've done. One thing I, I teach at a local college, one thing I like to do with my students is go through all of the crimes that they have committed that they were not arrested for. I like us all to remember that we have done things that we are ashamed of. Ashamed of. We have all done things that hurt people. We are all human beings doing our best some of us have more supports than others. Some of us have less trauma than others, but everyone is attempting to do their best. And what is really required for us is to bring those folks into the community and say, we love you, we are here for you, and we want you to heal. And I think that is the path that we should be going in in our criminal justice system. And I hope that's the heart and mind that folks can bring to criminal justice reform but just in general, everyone you meet realizing they have a journey, they have a story, and they're doing their best. Apparently, I don't just cry when, when I listen to you sing. I also cry when I listen to you talk. Danielle, you are incredibly special. We are so grateful that you were with us today. We wish you well. We'll be watching. And we're going to have another chance to listen to Danielle's artistry. Uh, so stay tuned. But first, we want to thank all of our guests for donating their time and talent and for their insights about one of the most challenging chapters of our lives. Finally, as a 55-year-old woman told the Gallup poll, her silver lining during the pandemic has been pra practicing being grateful for what I have. That's the way our Common Ground team feels about being able to share this time with you. So thanks for joining us today in the other Washington, Washington, Connecticut. Until we see you back here next time for Common Ground, I'm Jane Whitney. Take care. Freedom, won't you call out their names? Freedom, won't you call out my name? Freedom.
I'm your host, Jane Whitney, with heartfelt thanks to you for joining us. Thanks as well to our distinguished guests for helping us to see a complex issue through a different lens as our hope of finding common ground goes on. For more information on this podcast or to watch the broadcast version of Common Ground, visit ctpublic.org forward slash common ground. 